for his goodness and for his kindness toward us as we are back here to worship together. We're just grateful for the Lord preserving us and keeping us. Um, and we're just grateful to be able to walk and work through First Samuel as we have been doing. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed walking through this, and I think every week we are learning just a little bit more about God. And so this is like the penultimate story that we're going to hit today that all of us are probably familiar with. We all think we've, we've got this one down pat. We already know this one. And so as far as we, you know, can think, we probably don't need to hear this sermon, but there are some really important things about this sermon that we're going to learn today. So we are in 1 Samuel 17, and as you know, that is the David and Goliath text. And so the title of today's sermon is God, David, and Goliath. And so you know the story, and many of you can recall it um, as far back as your youth. You know who David and Goliath is. You know the end result of this story. And let's be quite frank, we love the end result of it. It's like I talked about a few weeks ago where we love the underdog. We love the underdog story, and this is why. This is why we like the underdog story. This is where it all begins. This is why the tortoise beats the hare. It's because of the Bible. But the reason I'm open up with this is because this has been told so many times, and we've heard it so much that I think David and Goliath starts to feel like a fable. It starts to feel a little bit like folklore even. The young, incapable boy is able to trample the large military warrior. But can we believe it? Can we believe that when we open up the Bible that these are the words of God breathed out to us? I mean, there is a reason that this is what we refer to for most kids when learning about the Bible. They love David and Goliath because it feels so much like an improbable story. Now, for something that has been so overdone, how can we use this to mean anything for us today? For something that has been heard so much, how is it that we can hear something new? Well, first, I think we need to look at the dynamics of the relationship between God and David, then David and Saul, and finally then David and Goliath. Now, this also shows us that sheer might is not on the side of David. He ain't strong. He's a little kid, and he's going to have to face this huge man. So before I begin, let me begin by saying this. It's a little caveat so you can know the direction of this sermon. You are not David, and your problems are not your Goliath. This is about God. It's not about you. It is about, though, his might and how he alone carried David to this victory. And so go with me if you will. We're going to do a lot of reading today. We're looking first at 1 Samuel 17. We're going to start at the fourth verse. And there came, a, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? 
Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest of sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next Benadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three elders followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took the stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take your brothers and ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your, to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well. And bring, some, and bring some token for them. Now Saul and they all, and all the men of Israel, were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper and of the baggage and ran to the ranks, and he went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word that we are getting ready to hear, God. It is a reminder to us and for us just the sheer strength of who you are, God. All of us at some point will face what feels like the formidable foe, the immovable object. But God, if we learn nothing else from today, let us learn and know that our truth, the truth of our fight, our, our battle, our war, whether that's against a real enemy or the enemy of sin, is only overcome because of you. Help us see this. Help us know you better today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so this text opens up here with us being introduced to Goliath. And from what we can see, Goliath is obviously towering over everyone. Now, this is different than what we understood about Saul. Remember, we learned that Saul stood and his shoulders were above everybody else's as well. So Saul is really tall. But when we look at this, we immediately think Goliath is a giant. Now, there is a little discrepancy between the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament, which in the Greek it says he's about six foot eight inches. In the Hebrew, we get about nine inches. Either way, what we do learn is that if you have only heard this story in the children's book, the children's Bible, you are told that Goliath is a giant. Goliath is not a giant, all right? He is, however, a really tall individual. And so knowing that he is a tall individual, we also learn that he's strong and he's a warrior. 
It says here in the description of his armor that it weighed about 5,000 shekels of bronze, which is about 125 pounds. He comes out and he asks, have you anyone to come draw up for me in battle? So basically, he wants to fight man against man, one-on-one. Now, this is interesting because this is not the normal way that the Israelites would have fought and probably not even the normal way that the Philistines would have fought. But when you have a Goliath, when the average height of a man is five foot two and he may be six foot eight or nine feet tall, then yeah, you might take your odds against anybody else that fights, even a Saul. And so he wants a person to come out and defeat him and challenge him. Now, naturally, you would think, well, obviously there's a tall man of the Philistines. There's a tall man who came out of Israel. He's the king. That should have been the person that came out man against man, one on one. But again, we are shown the ever-failing, cowardly leadership of Saul here. Instead of him being the one who goes out, his natural response should have said, you know what, I'm the king, I'm taller than everybody else, I'll go out and I'll fight this giant. But you see, he had also been chosen as king because of that physical prowess. He towered over all the people, but yet, Saul was not offering himself as the one to go out and fight these people. You see, if you were going to call yourself king, you had to be willing to die for the cause. You had to go before the people and you have to be willing to be the offering for the people that they may survive. But you see, I think Saul knows something secretly here. I think Saul knows that even if he dies, that doesn't guarantee that Israel would be preserved. Even more so, he probably knows if he definitely dies, that probably guarantees that Israel would be lost. So Saul knows, I can't give my life to these people. Y'all, he isn't king material. He is no different than the English monarchy. Recently, you know, Queen Elizabeth died and Prince Charles took over, and if you listen to the speech that he gives and all these declarations as, he, as they coronate him as king, he pledges his life to be the king. But the problem is, is nobody's really expecting him to actually give up his life because he's a king, but I think we all know this, the British monarch has no power. There are kings and queens in title only. They just got a lot of money. Saul, too, is a king, but in title only. He is not fulfilling the role of the king, and he certainly is not being willing to offer himself, which is what a real king would have done. And if you remember, what does Israel say when they want a king? We want to be like all the other nations and have a king who will fight for us. He's not even doing that. He's proven again that he is not the king. And so Goliath wants a man to come fight him, and Saul ain't the one. So then, interestingly enough, we are reintroduced for some reason to Jesse here as if we didn't know who he was. But I think I know why the the writer does this here. It reminds us that of the eight sons that Jesse had, David was not being considered to be the son that was going to be chosen. In fact, he was the youngest and the least regarded. It shows here that the oldest sons were in the fight, but that David was left at home to do the job that he was called to do, which is to take care of the sheep. He is far from the fight, 
but he is at least close to Saul. Look at what it says here in the text. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up and out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. I want you to notice how David is finding himself near the battle line, even though he's actually far away from it. Now, why do you think that is? I think it's because even though he isn't the king, he didn't need to wait to be king to behave like one. Let's go down to uh, verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, Now what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is the uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. But see, now Eliab, his oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left a few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not a word but a word? And he turned away from him toward another. And spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. I remember when I was in elementary, we had had two different principals, uh, Ms. Taylor and Mr. Vickers. And they were decent principals. They were good. There's nothing wrong with them. They did the job. They were nice. They smiled. They waved. But then our third principal that we had was Mr. Davis. And Mr. Davis is famous and infamous. He was about six foot three. He wore a suit every day, and he had a perfectly groomed and intimidating beard every single day you saw him. In fact, you could just look at him, and you knew that man is in charge of something. And for him, it was the school. Now, it wasn't so much about his looks as much as it was how he carried himself. Mr. Davis was no nonsense. He joked rarely. He smiled infrequently, but he always commanded respect. He was the kind of person you could feel him walk in a room and you can feel him lead. He commanded respect because he was a natural born leader. While David here may not have the sheer appearance of Mr. Davis, he is showing that he commands respect. While Saul and his men flee, David is asking, okay, so what did Saul say would happen if the Philistine is killed? And they say, well, he will make this man rich, and he will even give him his daughter. David wants to take charge. He wants to do something about this intruder, but then his brother hears him talking about it, probably annoyed that he, the older brother, is too scared to go out and fight him and 
confronts David and says, you need to go back and take care of the few sheep that you have left. Because he didn't like that David was already proving himself. Now, if you were writing a tale, if you were making something up, folklore, fable in this time, you don't make the youngest brother the one who's bold. You make it the oldest brother. If you want people to believe this, you're not writing this in this way. You would say, and the older brother went out and he defeated Goliath. But that's not what happens, because this is a real encounter. The younger brother is proving himself to be greater than the older. Now, I want you to see something, because this is, once again, showing us something important about God's narrative and how he handles who he chooses. Go with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 1 and 26. 1 Corinthians 1 and 26 is something that Paul writes here that is very important for us to learn if we understand what this means for us as a whole. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. It's beautiful. God says you are saved not because you were wise in the world, not because you were revered in the world, because you were despised. He uses the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. He uses that which is weak to conquer that which is strong. He says that he uses what is low, what is disrespected, what is unvalued, what is seen as foolish so that no one can look at you and say, you did this because you were better or because you had enough gifts or because you could work harder. No, they will look at you and say, no, you could only do this because of God. I know where you came from. I know what your daddy did. I know what your mama said. I know what your relationship with this person was. The only way you could make it here is because of God. That's what all of Scripture is testifying to us. That is why David defeats Goliath, not because David is strong, but because he's weak. But in his weakness, the strength of God is perfected. I posted on Facebook yesterday, what if God has not given us trials to make us strong, but to reveal our weakness in us so that his strength in us can be perfected? When we are weak, that is when his strength is made perfect. And it's so that we can't boast in ourselves. Now, I actually think it is God's common grace when we see all in our world, these celebrities, these athletes, these entertainers, who every one of them has a rash to riches story. They came from this and they became this. They became this from this. And I think even if they don't acknowledge it, 
It is God's testifying to us that he is responsible for who he gives and who he moves, even if they don't realize it. But the worst thing that you can do is be on the stage that God gave you and not even mention his name. That's why they want to write stories like this off as make-believe, because it just doesn't match up. We believe in our world that the most gifted, the hardest worker, the smartest is revered, but that isn't the case in God's economy. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 18, Paul wrote this, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. If you think you up on the world and you up in this age, God is saying you're actually proving yourself to be a fool. And that goes on even further. He says, thinking themselves to be wise, their foolish hearts were darkened. Let's look back at our 1 Samuel 17 text in verse 31 as it goes a little bit further. It says, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear would deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Look at this with Saul. David is prepared to fight this warrior. And while Saul puts up a little bit of resistance, he doesn't say, no, you shouldn't go because I'm the king and I will fight. He says, well, really, you're unqualified. You're outmatched. But the problem is, but Saul, you're the one who's qualified. You're the only one who's qualified to actually fight this man, and here he is discrediting David. At least he wants to go out. He says, you're young, and he has been trained to fight since he was young. He is disqualifying David before he ever gets a chance to prove himself. But I love what David says here. He says, Saul, I've already been proven. God has already proven me. When no one was watching, when no one was around, God was proving him. See, they thought that being a shepherd just meant watching sheep. But David says, but it also meant protecting the sheep. It meant leading them. And he'd been doing that since he was young as well. He said, when a lion or a bear came and took one of the sheep, I didn't just let it go. I didn't just say, oh, you just lost one. He said, no, I went and I got it. I went and retrieved it. He says, I've taken on lions. I've taken on bears. I can take on a man. Because you see, God, Goliath only trained to be a warrior. 
But God was training David to be the king. A true king, by the way. Now I want you to think of the image. Get in your mind that very literal image of a lion or a bear walking away with a lamb in his mouth. And I want you to get this image of this image of this little boy going behind a lion. Some of us run in our house if we see a dog go the wrong direction. I want you to think of this lion going the opposite direction and he sees it taking one of the sheep, one, and he pursues it. What would make a man, what would possess a man to risk his life for one? Well, let's go to Luke 15 and 3 to see if we can figure out why. In Luke 15 and 3, Jesus told them this parable. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who needs no repentance. Look at that. David is our forerunner to Christ. He, being a good shepherd, is paving the road that Christ would come down by showing that he would be willing to lose his life even for the one. Why is this so relevant? Because Jesus would have gone to the cross if only one of us in this room was saved. If only one of us was saved, Jesus still would have died on the cross for us. David faced a lion, but Jesus looked death in the face and he grabbed it by its mane and he defeated it. Notice how as David said that he defeated these animals, that he gladly redirected the cause of his triumph. He didn't say that I did it because I was strong. He said that the Lord caused him to conquer his foe. You mean weak, little, feeble David. Yeah. He is weak, but God isn't. So what happened? With the strength of God, he is able to face his formidable foe in his life. And what we should learn in our own lives is that when left to our own strength, we will always be defeated. We will be defeated emotionally. We will be defeated psychologically. We will be defeated spiritually. If we are the ones who must fight the battle and we try to take charge in our own life, you're going to lose. Hey, to break the news to you, you will lose. But if we have Christ, we can face any insurmountable task. This next moment that we see, though, is extremely significant, and there are undoubtedly a lot of layers to it in verse 38. And I want you to really grasp it. This is going to be important for us to understand whatever God has charged us to do. It says, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I, 
I cannot go with these. I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. While so many people want to focus in on David's, just his defeat of Goliath, this is one of the things that always has stuck out to me the most. While preparing to fight, Saul notices that David has no armor on. And so there is some available armor, but it's ironic because the only available armor is the armor that belonged to the king who should have been fighting. It's just a reminder to us that Saul is still failing as a king. The armor that is available is Saul's, and so he starts to put his armor on David. And I can imagine again this scene. David is a child, and he not only is Saul an adult, but we remember Saul is a large adult. And so he puts it on, and I can imagine that David can barely stand up under the weight of it. It's funny because I've seen this image a lot in my house. Every now and again, Elliot would grab, you know, our clothes. He's like, I'm mommy or I'm daddy. And it's like, no, you got to go put your clothes on because those are the clothes that fit you. Because there is a day you will be an adult, but you need to be a child while you can still be a child. But there is something significant about the fact that he doesn't fit this armor. He realizes, he says, if I go out here with this armor on, what was meant to protect Saul, was big enough to protect Saul, would actually probably lead to death for me. I would actually probably be harmed if I tried to put this armor on. And so, him taking that armor off was symbolic of this. He really believed that God was with him. See, God had not equipped him in that way, and for him to try to use something he never proven would have been the evidence that he didn't trust God. David, I didn't call you to put this on. This is not for you. This is for Saul. If you trust me, use what I've equipped you with, not what I equipped him with. So, The things that he had proven were the things that he grabbed. He'd used stones before. He had already had the slingshot. Why did he have it, though? See, as a shepherd, you use these items to fend off the animals. But you also use them to redirect wandering sheep. You plop them in the head, it'll turn them all the way around. What was in his hand was all he needed to use. What is also so beautiful is that if he put this armor on, he would have been trying to capture the glory of Saul. And so he humbles himself and accepts the armor that God had provided for him. This is a reminder that Jesus was the glory of God, and he humbled himself in the likeness of sinful man. This is what a real king does. And we go to 41. It says, And the Philistine moved forward and came toward David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you have come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by the gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear 
and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver me, will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistines. And David put his hand in his bag, and he took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. Stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose up with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath to the gates of Ekron, so that they wounded Philistines, fell, over on, the, fell on the way to Sharon, as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this you? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Goliath is literally (laughs) insulted when he sees David come up to him. And he says, Am I a dog that you're coming to me with sticks? He mocks him. He says, you don't have what you need in order to be able to defeat me. But David makes it clear. He says, you have come with your weapons. You have come with your armor, but I have come in the name of the Lord. How do we likewise face the difficulties in life? It doesn't matter if what we face feels insurmountable. If you take Christ with you, then you are in the majority. You have all you need to face whatever comes before you. But I want you to see something else that is significant. He takes that one stone out. That's all he needs. Further proof that God was with him, just one, perfectly aims it at Goliath, and Goliath is dead. But then he cuts off his head, and that may seem like an insignificant thing, but it's not. I intentionally didn't talk about what that 5,000 shekels of bronze that coat of mail was. Basically, that coat of mail made him look like a giant serpent when he came to him. And it just reminded me of what we've been looking at in Genesis. When that serpent came in the garden and he deceived Adam and Eve, 
And the curse that he receives is that you're going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. Well, David doesn't crush the head, but he sure cut it off. Again, being the forerunner for us to Christ, showing us that Jesus will defeat our final foe. He has already conquered death, hell, and the grave. And one day, Satan will ultimately be defeated and cast into the lake of fire. If nothing else, we are reminded that though we face an unformidable, a formidable foe in Satan, Jesus will at once and for all defeat him. And all sin and all of its effects will be gone and done away forever. And that is something to shout about. Everybody's clamoring for a king. Everybody wanted to watch all this stuff when Charles became the king. But what about Jesus? We have a president, but we need a king. And I'm grateful that we have the king who not only offered himself, but he stood on the cross in our place, and he, for us, absorbed the wrath of God. We can learn what a real king is because we saw Saul, the king, fail. And David is just setting and charting the course before him that Jesus would ultimately come down and be our true and everlasting king. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the true king. God, we thank you that on our behalf you have absorbed the wrath of God. God, even though you knew what death and what hell looked like, even though you knew what that foe was, you stood in the midst of that foe and you went to the cross anyway. You did not spare your own life. Who are we, God, to try to put anything or anybody else in that place, in that position? One, God, we learn that if we know you, there is nothing that we can face that we should fear. God, even in the threat of persecution, even in the threat of hate, even in the threat of violence against Christians, if we know you, we already have the victory in you, not in ourselves. And this is a reminder for us, God. Lord, but it's also a reminder if there are any of us in here who don't know you, that we may face battles and we may face insurmountable tasks, but we don't have what, it need, what we need to conquer the greatest enemy, which is our sin. Lord, if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you, they are facing a foe that they cannot match up to. Our arms are certainly too short to box with God, but they're even shorter when it comes to boxing with sin. The only way we will have true victory, God, is in you. And so we pray that this will be the day that you would open their eyes, that the scales would fall off, that you would open their ears and their hearts so they would know and believe the truth of the gospel. 
We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.